How amazing was that worship? Was that? I think you need to give the band a big round of applause. Yeah. For leading us in that, that was incredible. Um, it just, you know, I believe, part of me believes that what happened tonight was flow on from this morning. And I preached this word that I'm going to preach to you guys now. And I believe it's the key to seeing breakthrough and to seeing change and transformation in our lives. So I want to encourage you to listen, strap in your seatbelts, get ready to listen, because I believe God wants to do something amazing in our church and in our individual lives as well. We've been following the children of Israel as they enter their new beginning. Is everyone remember that? We've been going through the book of Joshua and, and the children of Israel are entering into the promised land. And uh, the last time I shared, I talked about the importance of humility in receiving our new beginning. Tonight, I want to take a bit of a different turn and look at an obstacle that can be in the way of our new beginning, something that can stop us or maybe hinder us from receiving all that God has planned for us. I touched on it a bit last week, but I want to go into it in a little bit more detail tonight. And I want to talk about the obstacle called pride. Pride. Why don't we pray? Lord God, I just ask you right now that as your vessel and as, a, as I come before these amazing people that you would use the words that you've given me to speak and that you would speak into our hearts and that it wouldn't just be word that finds some ground but it finds fertile ground that will spring up and bring transformation and change to all of our lives, including my own. I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our story, we're in Joshua chapter 7. As I've shared over the last few weeks, the children of Israel have just conquered Jericho. You know the story, it was amazing. They marched around and, and the, as, on the seventh time they yelled and the walls came tumbling down and they conquered Jericho. It was an amazing time. And the Bible says in, in uh, I think, chapter 7 of Joshua, it says that the, the word of the people of Israel spread throughout the land of Canaan, uh, the, throughout the promised land. And it literally says that the people of Canaan were terrified, were petrified because of this incredible thing that had happened. So the children of Israel now in chapter 7 come to this new city that they have to conquer, and it's called Ai. Can anyone say that? Uh, I. Not I as in E-Y-E, but I as in A-I. That's what it's called. And so the children of Israel send out some spies to scope out I and check it out and see what they've got, up, what they're up against. And they, these spies come back and they, they tell them, they tell the leaders and the children of Israel, this one's easy, guys. Jericho was massive, but this one's not as big as Jericho. Uh, we reckon that we could, we could deal with this one with about two or 3,000 men. We've got it covered, I reckon. And so they, the, the leaders listen to them and they go, okay, let's send 3,000 men out to attack I and conquer I. We won't have to send everyone, just 2,000 or 3,000. And so long story short, they send 3,000 men 
and they get spanked. They get smashed. They get sent back to camp with their tails between their legs. And the Bible says that 36 men were killed that day. And it's at this point in our story that Joshua, the leader of Israel, gets down on his knees in sackcloth and ashes and cries out to God and says, God, what's going on? You promised us this land and in our second battle we lose. What's going on? And it's at that moment God speaks to Joshua and declares to him, there is sin in your camp. And he says, there's a man called Achan who kept some of the spoils from Jericho in direct disobedience to what I commanded the children of Israel to do. You see, God had commanded them not to take any spoils for themselves. It was all for God. But Achan took spoils for himself and his family. And at that point, Joshua searched Achan's tent and discovered that he had buried spoils under his tent. And the story goes on to say that Achan and his family were stoned to death and killed for their disobedience. Now that's full on. That's not a light story. That's not light children's viewing. That's serious. And in our story, we see something very serious happens here. But in, in this whole story, there's a very clear indication that pride was existent in the camp of the Jewish people. And the Bible is very clear in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In our story, there are two very clear examples of pride. The first one is in the leaders of Israel. You see, when, when they came to fight the battle of Ai, they decided that we can do this in our own strength. We can do this on our own. If you read it, you will discover that there's at no point do they call upon God and say, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to attack I? As they had done with Jericho, and we know in the Jericho story, God gave them a very clear strategy. But in this one, they're like, no, God, it's okay. You just take it easy up there. We've got this one covered. We can do it easily. But sadly, they didn't know that there was a problem in their camp. It's a very good picture for all of us here that sometimes we want to attack things in our life and say, God, we're going to overcome this and overcome that. And, and we go for it and we, all of a sudden we fall flat on our face and we realize why is that? And usually it's because there's stuff in our life that we're not ready to win that victory. That there's stuff that God wants us to deal with first before we can overcome that obstacle. The second example of pride is obviously Achan. God was very clear in his commands to the children of Israel. Don't take any spoils. But Achan decided he knew better. He decided that my needs are more important than the needs of the group. You can imagine him reasoning in his head, I'm just going to steal a few of these spoils. I'm going to take them for myself. God gets all of it. I'm just, what's a candlestick here or there? What's a, a little bit of this, a little bit of gold here or there? God won't miss it. But you need to understand that pride is the garden bed from where disobedience grows. 
because it says my needs are more important than anyone else's needs, including what God requires of me. So what is pride? As I researched and I, and I was preparing, I'm looking, God, what, how do I define pride so people understand what it is? And no definition really covered all the bases. So I'm, I'm going to talk to you f- about it from an, a sort of an expansive sort of expression of what pride is. But in our story, we see two very clear examples of pride. And the first one shows us that pride is an attitude of independence from God and from others. You see, the children of Israel, the the leaders of Israel decided, we can cover this. We don't need God's help on this one. We can do it in our own strength. No trouble at all. And they displayed an independence. And pride is all about independence. I can do this on my own. I've, I've got it all covered. I'm strong enough. I can cover it. I've got it done. Don't worry. I don't need anyone else. Who knows, pride comes before destruction, though, as they discovered. The other thing, the other example of pride, or the way we can define it, is pride is esteeming oneself above God and other people. That's what Achan's problem was. He esteemed his needs and himself and his family above everyone else. I I can take some stuff because... What my family needs is more important than everything else. It's even more important than what God would tell me to do. You see, there's so many different indicators of pride in our lives. And this is one thing I discovered as I was researching, is there's no simple example of pride, but there are a lot of indicators that pride exists in our lives. I read many commentaries, and they showed all these indicators, I even went as far as to read some psychological stuff. Now that's gone deep. Because they talk a lot about the difference between pride and dignity. And it's really interesting to read. But even psychologically, psychologists write down and acknowledge that pride is a problem and can cause trouble in our lives. And so I want to show you some of these indicators. This might be a bit confronting. I know it was for me. When I read them, I'm like, Oh, God, there's a tick there for me. I need to deal with that and tick there. But the reality is sometimes we need a mirror to reflect to us back the stuff that's going on deep within that we don't show anyone else. And so maybe look at these indicators as a bit of a mirror for us to work out whether we have pride in our lives or not. So what are these indicators? Number one. Pride becomes irritated when corrected for mistakes. When your wife's told you you've done something wrong, how do you respond? Mm. I'm just going to keep moving because I don't want to stop too, too long on some of this stuff. Pride is unteachable. That goes without explaining. Pride is highly opinionated and argumentative. I'm sure we've met some people like that. I'm not looking in any direction. (laughs) Look straight ahead and my eyes up. Pride will not admit mistakes. Pride is critical of others. Let me look at this a bit deeper. 
in that pride loves to highlight others' flaws and faults to make itself feel better. You might not like this one. Pride is a workaholic. You see, sometimes pride believes performance gives self-worth and that's more important than our everyday relationships where we would place our work and being seen as dependable in our boss's eye or in other people's eyes rather than the relationships that are closest to us. Sometimes pride can be a workaholic. Pride is controlling and legalistic, especially true within church circles. I I know of many churches, uh, and I've, dare I say, been a part of churches where legalism has been used to control people, use them to do what you that what the leadership would want them to do. And sadly, we see it all too often. Pride is self-reliant. In other words, pride does not uh, pride refuses to take counsel and learn from other people. Pride often shows itself in competition with other people. Pride is envious and covetous. I like this one because pride doesn't necessarily want more, but it wants more than somebody else. Comparing. Why have they got that much? I deserve that much. I should have that much. I want what they've got. Whoever struggles with looking over the fence... Grass always looks greener over there, doesn't it? Why can't I have that? What am I going to do to get that? The couple that I thought of myself, these are mine. But pride is always late. Because pride doesn't consider the inconvenience it causes to others. But at the same time, we all know that late person, don't we? I'm not looking in any direction. But at the same time, for all you people who are thinking, well, I'm always punctual and early, pride is also early. (laughs) Because sometimes we always want to be early. So why? So we look good in other people's eyes. So people look at us and go, oh, aren't they good? They're always early. The fact is pride is cunning and deceptive because no one really knows what's driving us on the inside except ourselves. And let's be honest, sometimes we're not even conscious of how prideful we can be. Isn't that true? So a simple good measure of pride is that if it is all about the elevation of self, if it's all about elevating myself above others, then it's pride. And it can be as obvious as a selfish act, stealing that car park, Cutting off that person, it can be as obvious as that, what a selfish person that is. But it can be as subtle and as maybe even as confusing as someone with low self-esteem. Because they don't see themselves as they actually are. 
You see, God says we're fearfully and wonderfully made and that we have value because we're created in his image. But if someone says, no, that's not me, I'm unworthy, I'm useless, I'm hopeless, I'm not fearfully and wonderfully made, I'm just run-of-the-mill hopeless, that's pride because you're not listening to the truth. And who knows, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I want to share from you from Galatians 5. This is the main crux of what I want to address when it comes to pride because I think Galatians 5 addresses pride really powerfully because it talks about two traps we can fall into when it comes to pride or the elevation of self in our lives. When Paul is writing to the Galatians, if you get to Galatians 5, you discover that Paul is not very happy. He actually is quite strong in his language and he says something along the terms of, who has tricked you, you morons, type of thing. That's my version of it. You, 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 you've been tricked and you've let yourself get tricked. Because what these Galatians had done is they had tried to add to their salvation stuff. So they had, they had decided, someone had told them that if you want to make sure you're saved, you need to get circumcised. Now, if anyone said that to me, I'd say, get on your bike. Oh, no one's going there. That's for the truth. But the reality is, just think about that for a moment, and then just let it go out of your mind. Let it disappear. But why would you do that? But the reality is because it's legalism, and that type of adding to your faith is a form of pride. I want to read to you, I'm not going to read the whole of Galatians, but I want to read to you just one part because I think it sums up what this is all about really powerfully. And it's in Galatians 5 verses 13 to 15. I would encourage you when you get home or sometime this week, read all of Galatians 5 because it is powerful. It will transform your life as you read it. But in Galatians 5 verses 13 to 15, it says this. It is absolutely clear that God God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God, God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will, you, and where will your precious freedom be then? You see, God's plan for us is to give us freedom. John 10 says that Jesus came to give us life and life to the full abundant life and this freedom as Chris said is only found in Jesus Christ we can't find it anywhere else you see this freedom is found when we submit our lives to the rulership and the leadership of God the Father when we place it under his reign and this passage clearly tells us That freedom doesn't allow us to do whatever we want. Jesus makes it very clear and and, and Paul in this passage throughout Galatians 5 makes it very clear that number one, 
We have not been set free so we can indulge in our sinful desires or indulge in our, the lusts of the flesh, it says. He makes it very clear, you, your freedom is not for that. But he also makes it very clear that we haven't been set free so that we can live according to religious legalism or according to the law. This is really important and, and we need to understand the reason God doesn't want us to live according to our sinful desires and he doesn't want us to live according to religious legalism is because both of those things are based in selfishness and pride rather than serving one another in love. See, that's the freedom that God has called us to. When we find God's freedom, he, he says that I've set you free so you don't have to live any longer in selfishness and pride. But you can live in a place where you can love each other humbly in love. That where you can serve one another humbly in love. Where you don't have to have these strivings and these pushing yourself forward. I need to be this, I need to be that. But I can actually just be myself and we're equal and we know each other and we can help one another and serve one another. This is so important because it's what the kingdom of God is all about. In communion, Chris talked about the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us talked about the fact that Jesus became a man like you and me so that he could help us see Jesus gave up everything he had he gave up his place in heaven it even says that he laid aside his divinity for a time so that he could become a man and come with a humble attitude and help us God the father himself it says in John 3.16 that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son so that we wouldn't have to perish but we could have eternal life if we believe in him. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. That's what Christianity should be all about. Following God's example. An example of loving each other and serving one another, and humbly giving to one another. You see, pride and selfishness, self-centeredness, whatever you want to call it, is at the root of all our problems. And it's the sin that Jesus came to pay the price for. When we indulge in our flesh, when we indulge in our sinful desires, whatever it looks like, it might be drunkenness, it might be drug-taking, it might be sexual immorality, might be swearing and gambling and cheating and doing all of that stuff. When we, when we do that, we're just, the reason we're doing it is for pride. Because you only do those things to satisfy yourself, isn't that right? You only do the, those things to make yourself feel better. I will use other people to make me feel better. I will use substances to make me feel better. And that's why God tells us, that's not the freedom I've, I give to you. I give you a freedom so you don't have to do those things. But I'm talking to a church tonight. So I'm sure many of you don't struggle with those things. 
excuse me, at all. But maybe we're sitting back there going, well, I don't do that stuff, so I'm okay. I, I don't drink and smoke and do that gear. Let me say this. Pride and self-centeredness can be just as obvious in Christianity and religion as in the world. You see, we can keep all God's commandments and we can say, I don't swear, I don't do this, I don't do that. But in truth, sometimes the only reason we're being good and doing the right thing is because we want to gain merit with God. We want to gain credit with God so we can make sure we are getting to heaven. We're doing it for ourselves. What did I say? Pride is the elevation of self. So if you're doing those things for yourself, then it's no better than a works program. It's no better. And the Bible says clearly, we are not saved by works. It's by God's grace that we are saved. Not by works. Why? So no man can boast, be prideful, look at me, look how good I am. I'm going to heaven because I've done this, this and this. That's dung, Paul says. I say it in a nice, that's just rubbish. Because there's only way, only one way we can find God. And it's in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, if we're doing it to get people's attention and if we're doing it to promote ourselves and gain merit with God, it's pride. God's kingdom is all about serving one another humbly in love. Our passage said God's law, God's command can be summed up in one phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the freedom that God has called us to. That's why Paul was getting so angry at these Galatians because they were trying to add to their faith, add to their salvation, circumcision, works. What a load of rubbish because it's only by God's grace. See, the truth is whether I am fulfilling the lusts of my flesh or doing my religious duty, I'm paying my offerings, I'm, I'm going to church every Sunday, I'm doing all this, if I'm doing it to meet my goals and my needs, then I am a slave to pride and it has control over my life. Jesus makes it clear, he paid the price for our sin. He paid the price so we could throw off all these selfish, prideful desires. He could throw off these clothes that we wear to cover up our pride, whether it's activities that are self-harming and damaging or whether it's activities that might seem good in everyone else's eyes but deep down we're only doing them out of prideful motives jesus wants to clothe us in his righteousness that's the only way we will ever be righteous not by our works not by what we do or we don't do the only way we will be righteous is by clothing ourselves in, the, in Jesus' robes of righteousness. 
You see, when we clothe ourselves with Jesus, then we can live in the freedom that he has called us to. The freedom to live as he lived. The freedom to live for others. The freedom to want to see others excel above yourself. The freedom to want to show others the way of truth and the way of God's life. This is what God has called us to. This is the freedom that God has given each of us. The freedom to love and serve our neighbor as ourselves. If anything is stopping you from doing that, can I just say this? I guarantee you, without a shadow of a doubt, and I can say this with all confidence, that whatever it is that is stopping you from doing that, that it's rooted in pride. I can't do that because I'm too busy. I can't do that because I've got all these problems myself. I can't do that because I, 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 I. Isn't that right? That's just pride and that's just self. I want to finish with a story that shows us what is possible when we deal with pride in our lives. When we, when we identify pride and say, enough is enough, I, I choose God over pride, anything is possible. And this story is in Isaiah chapter 6. I want to read it to you and show you what is possible when we eliminate pride from our lives. It says here, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I think we've sung that here a few times. Is that right? Above him were seraphs. Now seraphs are types of angels, each with six wings, with two wings, They covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So I don't know how you can picture that, but that's pretty crazy. (coughs) And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Let me explain something to you right here. When Jews wrote scripture and they were writing things down, they had a, a certain technique where they would repeat words for emphasis and so when you say if you've ever read uh, Jesus talking he'd often say verily verily that, that verily verily was like listen to this this is really important but if you said something three times it's not that you were repeating it three times what it meant is that you were yelling it so these angels were going holy Did that wake you up? (laughs) But they were doing it better than me because it says here, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. That's the atmosphere that Isaiah is having this vision and this this amazing vision of God. And he's saying, I saw the Lord. And, and, And there's these angels and they're going bunter, going, holy is the Lord. And that's, crazy and then it goes on to say and he responds by going woe to me I cried I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty then one of the seraphs one of the angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand 
which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Amazing vision that Isaiah had. An amazing revelation of God. And, and, and at that point he identifies his own inadequacy, his own unworthiness, and God responds by cleansing him and commissioning him to do his work. When I've read this passage, I've often thought that God opens the door for Isaiah when he responds in his unworthiness and he humbles himself. God, God, I'm unworthy. I'm a man of unclean lips. I think that's when God reveals himself to me. But if you read it properly, it says at the beginning, before Isaiah has responded, that God has revealed himself to him. Now, this is really unusual because in Jewish understanding and theology, that you were not God, you could not see God, you could not be in God's presence if you were unworthy. The priest at the time could only go into God's presence once a year, and if he had any sin in him at all, they would drag him out of the temple dead because he, he died in God's presence because no one could do it. But in Isaiah's vision, and he, he sees God in all his glory, and he realizes his own unworthiness. So why? Why could Isaiah see God if he was unworthy? I think the answer is found in verse 1. Whoops. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year King Uzziah died. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So what's the significance here? If you go to 2 Chronicles 26, I won't go to it now for the sake of time, but in 2 Chronicles 26, it talks about King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a good king of Israel. He came to the throne when he was about 14. Got anyone here that's 14? Gracie, imagine you becoming the Prime Minister of Australia at 14. But he became king and it said he was a good king. He was a, God, a king that followed God, a king that did the right things in God's eyes and, and that he, he gained great favour. He, he won battles and overcame enemies. He, it says that he literally had so much livestock, so much livestock that he had to build aqueducts, a whole uh, system of aqueducts that people would come from far and wide to see because it was such an amazing accomplishment that of all this stuff that he had built. And that he was a, 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 God, a king that had God's favour on his life. So why is it so significant that the year King Uzziah died? Well, if you go to 2 Chronicles 26.16, it says of Uzziah, but when he was strong, in other words, when he was self-sufficient and thought he was pretty hot stuff, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of God. You see, King Uzziah thought he was so good. Look at everything I've done, not realizing that God had given him favor. Look at every. Uh, I am so good. 
that even though I'm king and I shouldn't go into the temple, I'm so good, I've done so much, then I think I should be like the priests and I should be allowed to go and burn incense in the... He thought, he looked over the fence and thought, why can't I be that bloke? The pride of comparison, is that right? Why can't I do what the priests do? And the Bible literally says that he got struck with leprosy and died from it in years to come. You see, our story tells us very clearly that for us to see the Lord, for us to have a revelation from God, for us to have a new beginning, pride needs to die in our lives. This is what it tells us. The year King Uzziah died. The year that pride died in the nation of Israel. The man of God saw the Lord. The man of God saw the Lord and he realized his own unworthiness and and God came and cleansed him and commissioned him to do his work. A new beginning began for Isaiah. In our story about Achan and, and the children of Israel and all of that, it's the same thing. For them to conquer I, pride had to die in their camp. Church, can I encourage you that if we're going to begin a new beginning, Pride needs to die in our lives. We need to say no to pride. We need to make a stand and identify areas of pride in our life and say, God, forgive me. God, help me. God, I lay my pride down and I choose to humbly follow you. Jesus said it this way in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What is he talking about? He's talking about pride. I need to deny myself. And take up my cross and die daily to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus' way to follow the way Jesus do it. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to die to myself. I need to put myself in its place and not try to elevate it above others or promote it above others. John the Baptist said it this way when he saw Jesus. It's really interesting in this story. His disciples and others were saying to him, look at Jesus over there. He's got more followers than you. Look at Jesus over there. He's baptizing more people than you. And and they were saying, it's almost like that competition thing happening. And they were expecting John going, well, how are we going to get more followers? How are we going to catch up to Jesus and do it as good as Jesus? But John the Baptist identified that this was not the right thing. And he understood his way. And he said, his response to them was, I must decrease so Jesus, so he can increase. And that's the same prayer that we should pray. I must decrease so that Jesus in my life can increase. Because when he increases, then we learn to live in the freedom that he has called us to. The freedom to love each other. The freedom to serve one another humbly in love that's the freedom can you imagine what it would be like if we lived without pride 
not trying to promote ourselves or push ourselves, but trying to see the best in other people and trying to lift up others to be the best they can be. And in turn, they try to help you be the best that you can be. This is the kingdom of God. This is what he has called us to. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer? I know a lot of this has maybe been a bit confronting. A lot of this stuff about pride. And maybe when I put up those indicators, you thought there was a mirror looking back at you. I don't know. But there's one way we can deal with it. Is we can bring it to God, lay it at His altar and say, God, I give it to you. Help me with my pride. I, I acknowledge it. I, I see it. And I, I say, God, help me. Help me with my pride. So tonight I'm going to get Jack and the guys to sing I Surrender All again. And I really believe that it's a time that we can't leave this in this place, but it's a time to respond. That in some way we need to respond as an acknowledgement that I I am putting pride to death in my life tonight. I know it's not going to be the only time you deal with pride because it'll come up again. It's sneaky, it's deceptive, it's cunning. And there'll be another time you need to do it. But tonight... Let's put a line in the ground, a line in the sand, a, a marker in the ground and say, God, I acknowledge pride and I choose you.